Hi, this is Kristen Lee, managing editor of the New York Daily News and reluctant sister-in-law of Peter Horn. You're listening to the Point of Learning podcast. On today's show, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern. It's all story. It's how do you tell a story? How do you find a character that people will care about? How do you create a challenge that has to be overcome? What are the plot points, you know, that are going to get you through it? We talk some about the learning his work regularly requires. To report a story is to be a student of something new, to learn how a world works, whether it's Freegans or debt collection or refugee resettlement or searching for gold in the mountains of Poland. And about finding the value in rejection. My YA book that became a bestseller, we were rejected, I think, by almost every publisher except the one that published it. And then it succeeded. But there's a lot of rejection. I'm excited to share highlights of my conversation with Jake Halpern, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who has told and reported stories for a spectrum of publications, from GQ and Sports Illustrated and Outside Magazine to The Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, and the non-failing New York Times. On the radio, a favorite medium for this podcaster, Jake has contributed features to All Things Considered and the New Yorker Radio Hour. His story, Switched at Birth for This American Life, is on their top 10 list for best shows ever. Jake has also written critically acclaimed full-length works of fiction as well as nonfiction, eight books altogether. He and co-creator Michael Sloan won a Pulitzer Prize earlier this spring for the New York Times comic, Welcome to the New World the true story of Syrians arriving in the United States on the day after Donald Trump's election. His catalog of journalism and fiction is so wide-ranging, I'll direct you to his website, jakehalpern.com, to get a fuller sense of the scope of it. Plus, I promised him I'd try to keep my intro brief. I first met Jake in 1986 when we were sixth graders at City Honors of Magnet School for students in grades 5 through 12 in Buffalo, New York. I want to highlight just two strong aspects of Jake's personality that were fully in play when we were kids. First, he's always been an amazing storyteller. His friends used to joke about what we sometimes called Jake's fables, entertaining stories Jake would relate on just about any subject under the sun. Second, he's always loved to wander and explore. The extensive international and domestic travel he has since undertaken was foreshadowed by his infamous meanderings throughout the city of Buffalo, when I like to say he was in urban drift mode. We refer to both of these phenomena at different points in our conversation, but they're also appropriate touchstones to introduce this remarkable journalist and author. If I had to put the intersection of his personal and professional trajectory in a nutshell, it would be wandering sometimes getting lost, learning interesting stuff along the way, and telling stories about it afterwards. Jake and his wife Kasha are raising two sons in New Haven, Connecticut. A a question I like to ask uh, guests at the start, because this is a show about what and how and why we learn. Uh, Do you recall a, a teacher who was particularly influential for you? Yeah, I mean... 
multiple teachers really um i mean i remember um at you know it's at city honors where we went um mr toy you know was our was our european history teacher and he really lectured like a college professor and you know, we were young in that class. We were like sophomores in high school, and um, but there oh, yeah. was a, there was a kind of seriousness about the way that he taught that class that um, that I don't know. That it was just very inspiring and kind of instill a real. I mean, it's so funny. I, there's so I can't remember like stuff that happened like you know a year ago or six months ago, but I can remember him telling us a story of the defenestration of Prague. I remember Mr. Mm-hmm. Fitz with his just kind of like in his like really great kind of Mike plain spoken yeah. Yeah, yeah his south buffalo kind of demeanor just like the way that he he broke everything yeah. in history down to kind of common sense street smarts um yeah it was kind of thrilling i mean the stories and he would tell me the story of a friend that would steal the police cars and the but he would tie it in i mean i remember he would also he he i mean i it's weird but i remember him telling the story of uh, and I don't like even have an especially good memory, but I remember him telling the story for um, the Missouri Compromise and how Thomas okay. Jefferson said it, the, the the fight over it woke him like a firebell in the night. And then he went into this whole bit about what a firebell in the night meant in 1820. And like, but it is like, oh, it's just, it was, I mean, that's anyway, um, we could go on and on, but Fitz and, and just feel like one other guy that um, was, was Mr. Duggan just a general sense of like of of someone that cared about you other than your parents um uh-huh. and um there's actually there's actually a cool little story when i found out that i had won the pulitzer i got a call from um, my editor at the new york times and i actually he, they had told me that I would know by the, the they were announced on Monday, but they told me you'll know the Times would know by the end of business on Friday. So 5 p.m. came and we were actually going to Spain. It was a long planned vacation with Kasha and the boys. And um, five came and it didn't happen. And it was like, well, whatever. I didn't really think that was going to happen. But then at 5:15 the call came, and um, wow. I saw the I saw it pop up, and I just. I didn't say anything to Kasha. I said, I got to take this call. And um, the editor said, um, <laughs> he was like very casual about it. It was like, you're waiting to find out whether you got cancer and he's telling you about your cholesterol. He was like, oh, how are you doing? Are you, are you like, is your plane taking off on time? And I'm like, okay, dude, like, please. like." And he was like, um, eventually he just said, um, hey man, I have some really extraordinary news. You just won the Pulitzer Prize. And I got like really emotional and kind of choked up. And Kasha's like, what's wrong? She like thought like one of our parents died probably. And then I told her and we had this like, the boys hugged me and people were trying to get past again. They're like, buddy, I gotta get my seat on the plane. Like, they don't care. Um, but anyway, so we they said like, look, you can't tell anyone um, because it's not official until Monday. The, you know, look, you're going to tell your parents, right? Which I did. But I don't know what, there's just a moment like about on that Monday, like about two hours before the announcement. And, um, and I had my phone on me and I had service and I called James Duggan and I was like, I I hadn't talked to him in years, but it was like a really, it was like an impulse and it was, it was genuine impulse. And I, I like, like, 
So you just have to act on that. And I called him up and I just said, he said, I'm calling from Spain. And he was like, oh, it's great to hear from you. And I just said, um, hey, listen, <laughs> um, you know, in two hours, this is going to happen. I'm going to get this award. I just want to let you know I'm thinking of you. Um, here are my thoughts right now. And I, I, wow. and I just want to, and it was, it was genuine. And um, so it's funny. I mean, I remember the things, I remember the things that like specific things that were taught in history classes, but I also just remember a few occasions of being, uh, of talking to him in kind of quieter moments and, um, and just him listening and feeling that, that it was really important to have someone that wasn't your parent that, um, that listened to you. Um, and, um, I don't know. And, and, and I, I was thinking of him at that time and I, I was so glad I called him. We had, it was funny afterwards there was, <clears throat> you know, just this kind of craziness of, you know, social media and all the people from Facebook and it, it, it kind of all became a blur, but I had this really nice little moment with, uh, with him on the phone. So I think that, yeah, it's a long answer to your question, but, um, but I, I think that really, you know, these the, the teachers that we know when, when we're that age affect us more than we may realize, you know? Um, well, and, it's, and especially the ones who you feel know you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that seems, that feels so poignant to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was interesting. It was, um, it was like shortly after college, I had a gig where um, I was, I taught at an American international school for a year at a high school. I, I was, I wasn't really was that, qualified was that, to be. Was that in Tel Aviv or? Yeah, was, that was in Israel. Yeah, that? and okay. it was in, it was um, it was one of these international schools where people um, where diplomats and people who are stationed in the service and um, you know companies that have to send their you know employees abroad send their kids. So it was quite international, and uh, it's just interesting. For but I what was interesting about it was I was not that far out of high school myself. I I must have been like a two year a year or two out of college. I mean, I'm sure you, you relate to this too. Just, Absolutely. You know, and I, it yeah. was interesting because you, you're actually not that far removed from high school at that point in time. Like the high Absolutely. school memories are still are fresh kind of right in your memory. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking it actually was really helpful because it gave me perspective on high school that I didn't have at the time, which is just that we all just feel kind of very... Maybe I shouldn't say all, but speaking for myself, I should say, felt very alone and very, um, you know, kind of isolated and keeping all your kind of fears and insecurities and everything in. And then this is to your point that if there's someone that you can talk to that you feel not judged by or or you feel some amount of genuine care for, it, it's hugely rare and valuable. As part of my preparation for interviews, I like to watch whatever I can find about my guests on YouTube. So recently, I spent 45 minutes of my morning tramp on the elliptical watching your address to the American Bankruptcy Institute. <laughs> wow. Uh, f- you remember this? Following the release of your 2014 nonfiction book, Bad Paper, uh, about an unholy alliance between a former banking exec and a former bank robber te- team up in your compelling expose of the debt collection business. I uh, was smiling, you know, to watch you hold forth up there without notes, 
telling literally incredible stories about your adventures while reporting the book. And judging from the audible reactions, you had the crowd in the palm of your hand, as well as me, uh, you know, there on the exercise machine. The elliptical might as well have been in the palm of your hand, is what I'm saying. And, and, and I wondered, is this the through line for you? I mean, I've been engaged by your storytelling since sixth grade, you know, comfortably more than 30 years now. The only problem but is, is the, story, the stories now have to be fact-checked, which is a whole other challenge. <laughs> But I, I wondered if this is the through line, because I thought about all the different yeah. kinds of stories that you've written and researched and told for NPR and The New Yorker and the, and the thriving, non-failing New York Times and The Atlantic, um, as well as the fantasy novels yeah. and full-length nonfiction books. Is it, is, is, that the, is it enjoying, appreciating, reveling, and ultimately wanting to tell great stories that you would describe as the major passion uh, your like your professional life project. Yeah, um, totally. Or is there another? Yeah. No, that's it. And it's funny because I don't think it really even fully occurred to me that that was the coming out. Maybe I I knew, but I, I think at times because I've done a lot of different things. I've done radio and, and magazine, and then I yeah. have these like young adult fantasy novels about you know iceberg fortresses and haunted forests at times it's felt like i felt like jesus what does this all add up to this feels pretty like add like i'm just like not focusing on doing one thing why can't i have a niche like other journalists but i think that at some point i it's been it's been it's been travel you know it's been family stuff it's been like you've taken on teen fame you know you've been yeah. exploring you know debt collection i mean yeah. it's it's really a diverse um portfolio of of things that you've you know taken up let alone the stuff that you've taken on like in the fantasy realm you know yeah. it's very you know well, I learned a lot from the, doing the fantasy stuff too. I mean, the, the I, in the sense of like, it's all story. It's basically like the commonality is, is absolutely story. It's how do you tell a story? Um, how do you find a character that people will care about? How do you create a challenge that has to be overcome? What are the mm -hmm. plot points, you know, that are going to get you through it? And um, it's weird it's funny, you would think that like it would be all intuitive and but actually, you know, good storytelling is is <laughs> I don't know, it's harder to to do and define than you think than you'd think. But that I, I that that is the comp that is the through line for sure. Well, how is it different you know, uh, cuz you've got these these different genres is one of the truly impressive things. Again, somebody who's known you for a long time, part yeah. of what I marvel at is that you are you know that you that you delve into these different re regions. So, how is how would you say it's different, like working with an idea for a novel, you know, as opposed to something you're going to put in a in an op-ed piece, like in the Wall yeah. Street Journal, as opposed to what you hope will become a full-length nonfiction book or a radio piece, or more recently a graphic uh, mm -hmm. tale. You know, does the is it the itch to work with a an idea or a set of ideas? Is that what comes first, or are they the constraints that are based on the genre, or is it different every time? Um, with the nonfiction, the nonfiction is kind of there's a magic to it. I mean, the funny thing is, is you would think that like the magic would be in fantasy, which it, it, it and, and which to some extent it is, but to me. Actually, nonfiction is almost more magical because you're you're delving into this these worlds, 
like deck collectors or um, freegans. Like I, you know, I did this piece about people who live without like that. Oh yeah, like, that was kind of that an interesting. Yeah, and you're kind of you're you're clawing or you're looking around in there and you're thinking this is an interesting world, but. It took me a lot of years to realize that an interesting world doesn't necessarily make a story. That like that, that and, and and even an important idea doesn't necessarily make a story. That a story needs a character, and it needs a conflict, and that it needs narrative tension, and that it has to have like these these points in an arc. And that took a long, many years to kind of. I don't know. It's it seems it sounds so simple. I like one. One example story that I, that I like about this is that I was living in India for a bit and I was writing this story for the New Yorker about a temple where they found, I think, $20 billion worth of treasure, something incredible like that. And um, it was a super complicated story. It had all these crazy twists that the treasure in the temple belonged to the deity of the temple, um, but uh, because the deity can't or doesn't speak, uh, the a Mahara, old Maharaja of the province was had custodian of the deity, um, and therefore the Maharaja really controlled the wealth. But some people who were devotees of the temple thought that it was thought that the Maharaja was doing a bad job, so they were suing basically for custody of the deity. It was it was it was really complicated and really interesting, but I was also lost in how to tell the story, and which is a very common and also not a great feeling of just like oh my God, there's so much here. How do you tell this? And we were driving by the temple with my um, then five-year-old in the back of the car. And he was like, dad, isn't that the temple? You're, isn't that your story? Isn't that the temple in your story? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, what's the story? And I was like, like I can't even figure out what the story is. How am I going to tell him what the story He's five. How is he going to understand the story? And I was like, ah, it's complicated. And he's yeah. like, dad, I asked you, What's the story? <laughs> it was just like, you know, he wanted to know. So I was like, all right, I got to break this. I'm thinking that scene. No, I'm thinking of that scene from Philadelphia where like Denzel Washington is he like, explain this to me like I'm five. Yeah, totally. That was it, right? man. That was right? it. And it, right? and so I had to break it down. That was right. That that was it. I had to, I was like, well, and when I broke it down to him, like he was five, which he was five. Yeah. I had this moment. Where it was like, holy shit, that's the story. You know, because like I feel like that's the thing is like there's stories is like you should be able to explain any story to a five year old. It should be really simple, um, but we make it unnecessarily complicated. Um, so, and yeah, that's something that having kids taught me, and also writing for like young adults taught me, which is that um, just like try to think of the story in like several beats and keep it. And so that is definitely a through line with all these things. It was true with the comic, it was true with all these things, which is like, what's the story? Um, yeah. I wanna ask about collaboration. So let me underscore first that you've authored dozens of pieces for print and radio as a solo reporter which is the way that we normally think about authorship. You know, one creator gets an idea or a lead, pursues it, then develops it into some kind of piece. But you also have extensive experience working as a collaborator. Uh, you've co-authored three fantasy novels, Dormia Trilogy, Nightfall, most recently Edgeland, uh, with Peter Kujawinski. And then the project for which you just won a Pulitzer, 
non nonfiction graphic tale about a Syrian refugee family who arrive in the U.S. on Election Day uh, 2016 called Welcome to the New World. Um, that was a collaboration with illustrator Michael Sloan. What are the, the blessings and challenges um, in your mind of collaboration? And how have you figured out ways to make that work? My longest time collaborator is Peter Kujawinski, who I've written um, five books with. Um, and um, that actually also goes back to, he was a friend of my, that, that school that I was teaching at, that international school, he was sta- in Israel, he was stationed there as a diplomat. So we became friends. Oh, is that right? Yeah, okay. that's, when we, that's when we met. Um, and we had a friendship before um, we collaborated. And in fact, I visited him in Paris and we went out one night with our wife. I think we were, yeah, we were married with our wives and um, we had like a lot to drink. And, you know, at one point he was like, I was saying, oh yeah, I have an idea for a kid's book. And I was like, he was like, well, I, me too. And I was like, we should do this together, you know, in like a moment of, you know, <laughs> of just expansiveness. And then the next morning he was like, so like, when do we get started? And I was like, oh shit, he's serious about this. Um, wow. And, you know, I was like, all right, well, let's... I, I had one of those nights, too. It was in Philadelphia, but I have yet to make that. Ha- like, that's cool that that came out of like, a, let's do this. And then somebody was like, all right, let's totally. hold ourselves to this. Right? Totally. And it was, yeah, it was probably one of like the best decisions I ever made. Um, oh, it was interesting wow. because that's inspiring. <laughs> Actually, that's I mean, very I, inspiring. I, I, I should say I've, I've, I've had impulses that were I've seen it go the other way, too. With Peter, we started working on this, and I remember thinking to myself very distinctly, okay, we're friends, but now we're going in basically like going into business together. And don't, aren't you never supposed to go into business with your friend or your brother or whatever? Right. Like it's then all of a yeah. sudden, you know, every time I talk to him on the phone, it's going to be like work and the relationship. The, the, and I, that all seemed quite reasonable at the time and felt like a, a legitimate concern. What what I didn't anticipate was that the work would actually create an infrastructure for the friendship. And I think mm-hmm. that I think that like you know, especially as you enter our, we're the same age, you know, I mean I I don't know how it is for you, but it's it's harder to maintain friendships. It's like sure. one of the you 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 can have friendships, but it's you know, life is busy. There's work, and there's your wife, and there's kids, and there's there's just a million sure. things. And and so, but I but I had to, I had to talk to Peter. Like it, because we're working on this, we had to talk sometimes every day, sometimes multiple times a day, and we had to problem solve like these bizarre problems of like, okay, the, there's I, a forest where you can't. I, turn, I will yeah. observe that this is this is the longest you and I have talked in several years. Totally, you know, no, but but and that's actually not about that's kind of relevant in a way it's like you could think like oh this is work and um you know but this is like a small collaboration and like here we are Yeah, you know this isn't going the air dude this is just like a ruse to get you to talk to me oh yeah yeah good well done but we're just like you you kind of i don't know it's weird i don't know it's a weird thing about middle age or something where it's like we've got like one friend in the neighborhood who like drops over unannounced and it's like he's the guy that drops in it's like you know, he's the guy that drops over unannounced and you're like what in the fuck did I become this old codger that doesn't like people dropping by unannounced it's like I think there's like the <laughs> right I mean it's just like it's crazy so 
I think it's like this all part of this isolating thing. So yeah, so good on you for um, for <laughs> you used to drop by unannounced, you know. <laughs> totally, yeah. I know. It's a, it's a thing. It's a thing. If you were in drift mode, remember that? that yeah, was urban drift mode, <laughs> man. I remember that. For, I feel like those, like yeah, yeah that that in my story is Jake's fables. That I, I tell you, man, when I had to start fact checking, it really cramped my style. My point was that I realized that um, yeah. that that it kept a friend in my life. And it gave me a reason to yeah. call him and talk to him. And actually, it wasn't a problem that the personal and the interpersonal kind of bled into one another. And um, there was camaraderie. That, that, was, that was what it what it is. It's like, you know, when you're younger and you're, you're on a sports team together or you're, you know, you're in a class together, you're dealing yes. with a teacher. Yeah. Or you, you know, even for all of our shit that we, you know put each other through in school, just being pains in the asses to one another. There was a, there was a camaraderie. It was, there was a sense of, of, of kind of connectedness and of being this in this together. And, and I think that is somewhat stripped away at this point in our life. And I think I realized with, um, especially with Peter, like how like deeply I, I, I hungered for that. Anyway, so yeah, for, for it, and I'll just one other cool thing. I remember one time we went to um, we Peter and I went to an English teachers conference um, up in Saratoga uh, Springs, New York, and because okay. this is part of the thing they have you do to promote your book, it's like a logical audience. And um, one of these teachers said to us, "Who is who is the audience that you write for? When you write, who is your audience?" And Peter. Raises kind of went to answer the question first, and he said, "Oh, that's easy. My audience is Jake." It was such a beautiful thing to say, um, and it was true. I think that the first draft he wrote with me in mind to see if like I could get him excited or if I saw problems with it, and I quickly realized, yeah, I guess I'm writing. That's right. I'm writing for Peter, and writing is such a solitary thing to be able to say something like that. It was really profound, and it kind of spoke to what a collaboration could 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 be at its at its best. And did you guys? Forgive me. I think I did know this at one point. But did you did you trade chapters, or did you like he would do a portion of the story, and then you would take it, give feedback, and work from there, or did you both come? Like how how did you, what was your rhythm? The truth is, is that it's changed a lot over the years, but generally. Okay. Generally, what we try to do is we spend a lot of time talking on the phone, sketching out the story. And in fact, sometimes there's times where we talk so much, it's like, this is ridiculous. When are we going to start writing? But the talking is kind of how you hash out the story and the characters. And, and, then, we, mm-hmm. and then we do kind of alternate. We have alternated chapters. And, and our voices have kind of merged a little bit more over, over the years. So some, sometimes I read it and I think like, I can't. I can't remember who wrote that. Was that him or me? And that's actually true of a lot of it. So, for example, like your most recent collaboration was Edgeland. At that point, like when you were in the heat of writing it, would you guys be talking like uh, once a week, couple times a week, once every other week? Like what, you know, like... That book was insane um, because um, we had been writing these books in a very, very sleepy pace for years where there was not Uh a huge sense of urgency. Where, yeah, you'd talk once a day maybe... What happened with Edgeland was um, the previous book, Nightfall, um, 
it was bought by Penguin and Penguin was just a much bigger machine and the book was briefly on the bestseller list and so they they like the the editor was basically told us you need to turn this book around in nine months and it was just wow. crazy I should have like looking back I should have been like no uh, it doesn't like <laughs> but they literally they, they said to us moral it was conveyed to us that if we wanted the full might of the of the you know whatever their support that we needed to do this quickly so this is how crazy that got we were on the phone like five times a day oh, and wow. we were working on we were working on it as a google doc and he would be working on one section i'd be working on another and then we'd hand it to the editor but the editor wasn't we couldn't do it fast, like traditional draft, you write the draft and you send it to the editor and the editor sends it back to you with comments, but that wasn't fast enough. So we were writing, like I was writing chapter, say four, he was reworking chapter six and the editor was behind us at chapter three and you could see her cursor on the Google Doc. Like oh, basically wow. cha kind of chasing you. Like, wow, and, it's like Pac-Man. It was, and then, yeah. I remember it was like totally like Pac-Man and then we finished the book I remember like finishing a draft of the book and usually like finish the book you like take like a week off you go out and have a dinner like I literally remember looking back and seeing Pac-Man behind me and going down like getting like a glass of water and coming back up and then just like immediately starting back on the introduction again like five minutes later because Pac-Man was moving through the conclusion and we had to just immediately start the next round because she had already put fresh edits there it was just oh that's incredible it, it was not fun it was it was it was i mean we did it and at the end we're just like we're never doing that again like that is just because on some yeah. level it, it did it did beat a bit of the joy out of the whole thing and the joy is important to kind of having some sort of spark to it but yeah so that was like three people simultaneously all working on the same document and you could that's just amazing. see where we were yeah it's crazy that was that's i've never amazing. seen that that's, before that's, Dude, that stresses me out sometimes, like on a Blue Jeans conference call, you know, when there's three other people looking at the same Google Doc, and we're not even doing that much, but just being there at the same time. I know. <laughs> it can add a little anxiety. Uh, remarkable. So tell me a little bit. I've read, there was a, a piece, I think, uh, was it a piece? Yeah, it was a piece in the Times uh, kind of explaining how they decided to pair you up uh, with Michael Sloan to take on this project. Um, you know, for a paper that famously had no kind of comic presence. The way that it happened was I had, I, I, I got in touch. I actually pitched an idea which the Times rejected, um, and which is very common. Most of my ideas are actually rejected, um, which is important, is worth saying. Um, but the I, I pitched this idea. They said no. But they'd said, oh, um, I, it was a story about a refugee kid. And they're like, but there is someone who's... In, interested in doing a project with refugee kids you got to talk to this guy Bruce Headlam who was the editor and Bruce's it was Bruce's idea he said I want to do a comic it's a tr I want to do a true comic about a kid who's in, in a family that's recent immigrants he said I would you be interested and I I immediately was intrigued by the idea I just thought it was different and in a way that really appealed to me and so then I, that's how I, then I found Michael and then so Michael was kind of on board and then Bruce was like well now you just got to find the family so I reached out to this guy that runs Iris which is the local resettlement agency in Connecticut and mm -hmm. he said hey I got an idea for you what if you follow a family from the day they arrive 
Like we have you there when they basically touch down in the US. And he said, you have to circle back to them and get their approval. And if they don't want to do it, then we'll find you another family. But uh, doing it this way, and I'm like, oh, that's I, cool. I like it. And I sent it to the idea to Bruce, and Bruce is like, great. And then and what Bruce ended up happening? Bruce is your editor. Bruce is the right. editor, exactly. Bruce Sorry, is like, right. ooh, this okay. is cool. And then I said, then the resettlement agency was like, ooh, we have two brothers arriving on election day, which seemed kind of cool, but no one, you know, everyone thought Hillary right. was going to win. So <laughs> it, it, it was didn't, not an interest, as interesting an idea yeah. beforehand. Yeah. No. <laughs> and then, of course, what happens is, is they arrive, I meet them, and then I got home, and Trump wins. And all of a sudden, I remember thinking to myself, this family landed in one country, and they're going to wake up the next morning in another country. Welcome I, to the new world. Yeah, yeah. And then I was just like, that was electric for me. Because that, first of all, mm. um, that was just electric for me. I just, I, I have to say, like, at that moment, I felt this, this could be a very dynamic story. And this could be wow. an, an important story. And I, sometimes you don't feel that. That was one time where I was like, I, 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 so I, but, but we had to convince the times. The times initially was reluctant because people think that they're a, a liberal organization, but they're actually conservative in the sense that they are an old institution that is used to doing things a certain way. And so um, I think it took some convincing that this was worth doing. And there was a two month period in between when they arrived before the Times actually ran the thing. And it was very unclear during that time whether or not they were gonna do it. And we weren't really being paid. Um, I should add that we didn't get paid hardly anything for this entire series. Um, we got, I mean, I'll, I don't, it's not public, but I don't have any problems saying. It was a 20 part series in the New York Times that took the better part of a work year to write and I got paid about 14 grand. Um, wow. So, you know, that's just not a lot of money um, for how much work it was. Um, and so, and it, and it, yeah. So Michael and I were kind of in this and we, <laughs> neither of us is making a lot of money. The Times is also not making us any promises on how long they're going to run this. They refused, they didn't, we kept on pushing them and say, give us, Help, it will help us story-wise. How many episodes will you will you run of this comic? And they they wouldn't tell us. And Bruce finally said, like they'll they'll run it as long as they feel it's good. Which added like another layer of stress, which is like we might oh get canceled. Like we how might, what, how yeah? How do you plan the arc uh, yeah. if you don't know how many seasons your show is going to run? Right? Yeah, <laughs> and you of course and you of course don't know what's going to happen because you're not. Yeah. But then things happened, and the most dramatic thing that happened. Um, was that the one family received a death threat, which the FBI investigated, and then it eventually right. the town, the family ended up having to leave the town where they were in, and it was really hard for the. I mean, it was like one of these conflicting moments as a journalist because it was terrible for the family, which I came to care about. But of course, I'm not dumb. I understood that as a journalist that it was really powerful for the story. So it was one of these kind of hard kind of conflicts. But so Michael and I bonded through this because I think. We didn't know how long the Times were going to run it. Neither of us was making a lot of money. Um, and, um, but we kind of felt like as it was going on and as the Times kept on running them and people, particularly in our neighborhood, because um, it was a Connecticut story, started following it. And 
And um, then we kind of felt like, all right, we did this, man. Like, this is this crazy thing that we're doing together. And I, it was really great working with him. And it shared, the, again, it was like the other thing, the other project I described, it shared the kind of loneliness of the, of the whole endeavor because we were in it together. I want to circle back to the idea of, um, you stressed for a second, it's important to emphasize that, that most of the ideas that you pitch get rejected or have gotten rejected. Yeah. Um, you want to say some more about that? Yeah. Um, I feel like it's important to say, like, even like, I think Nightfall, my YA book that became a bestseller, we were rejected, I think, by almost every publisher except the one that published it. Um, and then, and then it succeeded. But there's a lot of rejection, and um, I just pitched a story. I just pitched a, an op-ed um, like two days ago to the Times Sunday Review, who I just won a Pulitzer for, and they rejected it. <laughs> and they were very polite about it, but they rejected it. Um, and uh, uh, you know, and then I sent it to the Wall Street Journal, and they rejected it. You know. Um, and then I sent it to the New Yorker online, and I'm guessing tomorrow they're going to reject it. But the thing is, is sometimes they are right. Sometimes your idea is bad, or is not fully developed, or is not good. Yeah, just plain not good. Um, but sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes your idea is good, and they just don't see it, or they're too risk averse. And and then many some of the times you just don't know. You're like, is this a good idea that they can't see, or is this? a bad idea that I should be embarrassed that I sent to them. And you often vacillate between those two ideas. And so, but you, the only thing you have to do is you just can't stop sending out the ideas because then that's death. Then, then it just, nothing happens. And so the, this is the, the, like a good example of this, the, the comic that, um, that we've been talking about. I had an idea. Remember I, t- I, I said it started off with an idea that was rejected. The idea that was rejected was there was a family, a refugee family from Syria that wanted to settle in Indiana. And then Governor Mike Pence said, we don't want them. And Connecticut accepted them. And their kids go to the same after school program as my kids. And I thought, ah, there yeah. might be something there. So I was at the soccer practice with my 10-year-old. Um, t- and... I actually thought this thought. This is an interesting little idea. Pitch it right now before you talk yourself out of it and convince yourself that it's a crap idea. Because you will convince yourself that it's a crap idea if you sit on it for too long. So I, right there on the field with my little iPhone, I sent this little pitch to, um, uh, to my editor at, on the Sunday Review. And I was sent it. And the minute I sent it, I was like, oh my God, why did I do that? That was a crap idea. And then she wrote back and she did reject the idea. But then she said, but hey, you should talk to Bruce. And that's what started the comic um, that ended up winning the Pulitzer. So it started with a rejection. And it also started, though, with this little dialogue that I had in my own head, which was send the idea off before your doubt sets in. Often these half-baked ideas are the best ideas. And somehow you have to just get over the fear that you're that they're not going to work out or or accept that many of them are going to be rejected yeah that's probably better it you know accept it and um i don't know i've spent about 20 years trying to 
deal with that mindset of just figuring out how to keep faith. I asked Jake somewhat cheekily which of the following honors he found most special. Winning a Pulitzer Prize, being interviewed on NPR's Fresh Air, or having John Oliver use a video clip of him talking about the business of debt collection on the HBO smash hit last week tonight. Jake did not take the bait. External validation is like such a tricky thing because it's so, you know, we all crave it or I certainly crave it. I think many people do and it feels really good initially, but then it's tricky. Like it leaves you kind of often craving more in a way that feels greedy and not really great. I think that all three of those experiences, um, you know, whatever in their own little ways, um, uh, were like that. But I will say the best moment was the moment. Um, the moment I'll never forget is just being at the airport on that Friday before the Pulitzers were announced and getting the phone call from the New York Times and the editor saying, Jake, I've got some extraordinary news. You just, you and Michael just won the Pulitzer Prize. And then turning to my wife and just saying, we won. And her hugging me and the boys hugging me on the jetway to that airplane. That was just... um, that meant something that that was, you know, and then I called my mom and I thanked her and I just, I called my dad and then the plane took off and I was completely cut off for those next seven hours. And it was kind of a beautiful thing because I told, I shared with the people that meant the most to me and had this moment of just feeling like there is so much rejection with this work. And there's, I have been many years where I haven't made very much money and there's been so many times where I've just been filled with doubt. Um, and um, it was just really, really, really meant a lot to me to have that moment with Kasha and the boys and, and to kind of just be like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Like, this is amazing. And and just enjoy that. And then it was kind of <clears throat> washed over when all the, <clears throat> you know, then just you get a lot of messages from people on Facebook and and Twitter and whatnot and it's all nice but it, then it just it was like a, too much you know but that moment that moment was personal and, and real and um, and one that I treasure you said you said the greatest kind of commonality or through line here is story but I think certainly with the nonfiction the other through line is is, is just learning, is that to report a story is to be a student of something new, um, to learn how a world works, whether it's Freegans or debt collection or um, refugee resettlement or, sure. you know, um, searching for gold in the mountains of Poland, you know, all things. That, and you kind of, and you learn and it requires a kind of humility about like, I don't know how any of this works. I mean, I, I, I often hear myself saying, but it's actually somewhat, true I, I hear myself saying forgive me this is a really stupid question um and um because all my initial questions seem stupid and i'm grateful that i have a chance to kind of learn these things uh, because if you know if you stop learning then it's just 
it's over. You're done. It's just, that's just nothing more depressing than not learning new things. So I don't know. I, I, I think that like for me in these, in a very small way, like every time I start one of these things, it's that same feeling of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost in here. And this is like this complicated world. How am I going to understand it? And like, feeling kind of a little flustered and I don't like, I'm not an economics writer or I'm not a, I can't, you know, I don't, I'm not a health writer. How can I even do this? And then just being like, all right, dude, just chill out and, and kind of, you'll figure it out. And, and even though it's a little stressful, like somewhere along the way, you're like, this is cool. I'm learning something new and being forced to learn something new. And, um, I'm not bored. Um, so I don't know, that's kind of rambling, but I think that you're, it's all to your point about, um, about how vital it is that we force ourselves into, we kind of almost have to put ourselves in situations that, 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 that necessitate like learning. Um, and, and, and you always have, man. I mean, we were joking earlier about urban drift mode and stuff, but you still love, I mean, you, from the time I first knew you, you would love wandering you know, and kind of yeah. seeing where you wound up and paying yeah. attention to the interesting things along the way and then telling stories about it afterwards. I know your mom remembers this because I've talked to her about this many times and she, she definitely remembers it too. But I remember one time just like walking across the city and ending up at your house and you weren't there. Your mom would probably remember the, the details of it better than I would, but for some reason she had all this food and there had been some confusion. <laughs> There was a ham. It was, it was like the table was set for like eight people, but there was no one there. And is, your mom uh, was like... Gretchen star of podcast number 13. Yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, your mom was like, you know, your mom is just great. Just such a sweetheart. And she was just like always welcoming and always that goodwill, very genuine goodwill. And, um, you know, I always had such a soft spot for your mom. And, and she said... Um, well, why don't you come in and have something to eat? So it was like you, it was me, and you weren't there. You were not there. It was me and your mom having this dinner at her, at the house. And uh, <laughs> at one point I said, what were you going to do with all this food? And then she just laughed. There was a story that was lost on me, but, but I remember like, <laughs> it was cool. Like, you know, it was like, I remember we, I don't remember exactly what we talked about, but we talked and like, um, those moments are so great, you know, they're, they're like, you would never, I would never have been like, I'm going to walk across the city to have dinner with Gretchen, um, because yeah. that would just be weird, but, but, but no, I have She to loved it, and I remember hearing about it, you know, right after, I was like, wait, what happened? And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool, you know, it all worked out. Yeah, no, it was... <laughs> had a good time. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. That's it for today. Thanks so much to Jake Halpern for spending a few hours with me to record this conversation. Again, check out his voluminous portfolio of writing and radio work at jakehalpern.com. And thanks so much to you for listening, subscribing, rating, and sharing this podcast with everyone you know interested in what and how and why we learn. Schaefer James wrote all the music used in today's program. If you like the grooves, you'll love the lyrics, so do be sure to visit his site, SchaeferJames.com. See you next month!
you defenestrated his podium. Although it, it was only a partial defenestration because it was it was dangling from. The... Yeah, I think it was the threat of. Def- it was an implied defenestration. Just, just for clarity, what 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 you did? What for, for for those who who weren't there, you you somehow took his podium and. It, Hung it out the second floor window of the school on some sort of rope. Yeah, I, yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't safe or advisable. I don't <laughs> think. I mean, I believed it was secure at the time, but probably just going too far. Crazy. No, but I. I mean, we could we could digress. I I have some questions for you. Like I I want to understand like <laughs> how that happened. But the um.